Hey, Josh, I got a joke for you. Oh, man. All right. Let's hear it. Okay. Uh, Why are the pyramids in Egypt? Why are the pyramids in Egypt? I'm not sure. Why? Because they were too heavy to carry to the British Museum. Oh, my God. (laughs) Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. That belongs in a museum was once the correct side of the debate for the proper place to protect, display, and learn from ancient artifacts, or at least it seemed like the correct side when Indiana Jones yelled it out in between punching Nazis or whatever. After all, museums are large, safe buildings with subject matter experts whose goal is to preserve, record, and display items of historical and or artistic significance for the greater good. It is because of those institutions that many of us, as in white people living in wealthy countries, get to see the Rosetta Stone, for instance. However, does removing an object of such importance from its place of origin rob it of its context-based significance? Does it unfairly disadvantage people from certain parts of the world, already dealing with many other reverberating impacts from centuries of colonialism, when the art that their ancestors made requires airfare to Paris in order to be seen? Do the collectors throughout history owe a debt to millions of people in the global South for the theft of these important objects? Would it be best to return those items, even if the people who may have the genuine right of ownership for those artifacts don't always have as many resources to protect and conserve them? And how would the rest of the world learn about the cultures from which many of those artifacts hail if they cannot easily access them in a nearby museum? No matter how well-intentioned historians and archaeologists may be, And it cannot be overstated, no matter how satisfying it will always be to watch Harrison Ford wreck some brown shirts shit in the process of getting relics into the right hands. It is long overdue to consider how best to meet the needs and desires of all stakeholders regarding stolen artifacts. Welcome to Indubitably. Based on that, we've got a lot of questions to answer. Let's get into it. We're going to break up this episode into a few different parts. Uh, The first thing we're going to discuss is the different ways in which artifacts get displaced. The second thing is the benefits and potential problems that museums present, talking about the ability to educate as well as the ability to preserve or not, and some of the moral dilemmas and philosophical questions that surround ownership of cultural artifacts. So let's start with this idea of the ways that artifacts get displaced. They were in one place. And now they're somewhere else. How did that happen? Well, the first part of that story is probably to look at the history of colonialism, which brought a lot of people from one part of the world to other parts of the world. Yeah, this is probably the most common example of just straight up theft of artifacts from one country and moving them to somewhere else. There were two periods of colonialism that were very distinct in their purpose. The first being in the 15th century, which was a little bit more religiously motivated the God, gold, glory ethos, (laughs) which predominantly focused these uh, explorers, colonists, whatever you call them in North America. And they brought Christianity and took gold more or less home with them. It's quite the, quite the trade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, salvation, what's that worth? It's priceless. Well, actually, if you want to know how much salvation is worth, 
you could check out our episode on whether or not we should tax churches. Side note, (laughs) back to the subject at hand. During this period, a lot of explorers were given a lot of praise because they, quote unquote, discovered a lot of places, which, you know, had people living in them. So congrats to them for discovering places that were already found. And then a different period of colonialism that followed was more in the 19th century, which centered a lot more in Africa with the slave trade and a lot more looting of resources and a lot of the artifacts that will be in question in our discussion today. Yeah, and there's a crazy statistic that approximately 90% of Africa's cultural heritage, whether it's art, tools, jewelry, personal belongings, etc., is now in Europe. Yeah, that's bananas. 90%. <laughs> and a lot of the the motivation behind the people who did a lot of this looting, they really did think that they were doing the right thing. There was a mentality that this was for the glory of their home country. And bringing all of these Western ideas to people who didn't have them yet and taking things that people couldn't possibly appreciate and putting them into museums was a big part of that whole psychology. Mm -hmm. So colonization, definitely a major source for relocation of cultural artifacts. Another source of relocation that might not move things quite so far, but definitely shifts them from one group of people to another would be the transfer of indigenous art. This is something that happened commonly in North America, where the new American government would be taking artifacts from the tribes that originally populated that area. Examples like this are probably less common for what people think of when they think about returning stolen artifacts, because it stayed in the country of origin. It just depending on what context you come from in that country of origin, the right of ownership is a little bit um, nebulous. And alongside geographic location, I think that ownership and control is another important aspect of this debate. We'll get into ownership a little bit more later, I think. Mm -hmm. And then even though I think most people's conceptualization of the stealing of artifacts comes in the form of white men and ships with sails and flags coming over into South America or Africa and and taking things back with them. This is not something that has happened exclusively in those parts of the world. Uh, This is also something that's happened a lot in specifically China. China went through what was called a century of humiliation. And among other things, there were an incredible number of relics and artifacts that were taken out of China by both Japan For example, the Tokyo National Museum in Japan is currently exhibiting some 10,000 traditional Chinese cultural relics that were looted from China by invading Japanese forces during World War II. And maybe troublingly, some of these have actually been labeled by the Tokyo National Museum as Japan's national treasures. That's, I think, even more bananas. (laughs) Because it's very clear that if it did not originate in Japan itself, and then to call it Japanese would be false, but blatantly false. And apparently that's not an issue in Japan itself. And then there's the issue of artifacts that are in Taiwan that come from China. And depending on who you ask, might still be in China, depending on what you believe about Taiwan's uh, status as a legal entity separate from China or whether it's a part of China. Which is another episode that we have. We're killing it today. Uh, So if you want to talk about Taiwanese independence, check out that episode. 
But this happened when the government of Taiwan, separating, fleeing from mainland China, carried with them a, a multitude of Chinese artifacts on their journey. And I think, like what you were just saying, Kelly, with, with Japan labeling these things as Japan's national treasures, these relics and artifacts for countries and cultures are tied in very closely with identity and also pride. Uh, I, I don't think that it's random that Japan is saying, hey, these are our artifacts. I think that they know what that's doing to China's ego. That's pretty rude. <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is kind of the point, maybe? Yeah, um, I guess so. The idea here, it's not just about, are these artifacts valuable? There's a lot of emotions tied into the the sense that you've had something stolen from you or something that you're supposed to own is, quote, owned by someone else. This can get pretty deep and pretty contentious. And I, I think that the moniker of the century of humiliation ties into that very distinctly, very directly. That is an emotional sentiment to feel that all of these political things that happened, the loss of art that happened, doesn't just result in some sort of property transfer. It actually has an emotional bearing on how the country sees itself when art that is theirs winds up in places outside of their control and they have no means of recourse. Mm -hmm. And then the last sort of method in which these sorts of relics can be transferred that we certainly want to mention would be private collectors, which does happen frequently. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of examples stemming out of Nazi Germany, where individuals obtained art or cultural artifacts from Jewish individuals. The thing is with the private collectors that it happens on such a case-by-case basis, it's really hard to examine writ large. So for the sake of the episode, we'll be sticking to museums and government collections, but I do think it's important that we at least note that this is also a, a sizable subsection of this topic. Especially because some of the museums in question have gotten their collections through the donations of private collectors. So the origin of those collections is still contentious. But the museums as a whole, I think, is the more interesting discussion because of the amount of resources, the amount of relics we're talking about in those specific institutions. Mm -hmm. If a museum gets an artifact from a private collector, tracing that artifact back to its point of origin and whether or not it was acquired legally is a bit of a challenge even in and of itself. Like, how do we know that these items were ever stolen? When it comes to museums, their collections are going to be hard to determine, especially if there are private collectors who donated those collections to the museums. You could have so many different artifacts, which are very similar to one another, but some are stolen and some were legitimately acquired. So individually looking at private collectors and minutely discussing the origin of how they came to possess those things is just too big of, a, of an issue. But museums as a whole, having these items becomes the more convenient, but also more effective way to address massive amounts of artifacts and whether they should be repatriated to their countries of origin. Right. So let's move into this conversation about museums. And roughly, I think that it has two important parts to it. First is, do museums do a better or worse job of educating the public 
when it comes to being able to portray these artifacts? And second of all, do museums do a better or worse job of preserving these artifacts uh, in comparison to the place that they were taken from originally? And maybe at the start of this, it'd be interesting to note, are there some specific artifacts that we are talking about? Like, what are some of the famous artifacts that might have questionable origins? Yeah, I think a lot of people go through museums when they go to like destination cities and they see these really impressive pieces of history, but don't really get a full picture of how they got to be where they are. I'm thinking of in particular, the British Museum in London that has both the Rosetta Stone and the Elgin Marbles. Both of those items having controversial histories about whether or not they even belong in England. And I don't know that you get an idea of that when you're actually, you know, amassed in a crowd trying to get like glimpse of those items. Yeah, certainly the little placard describing the whatever it is, whether it's the Rosetta Stone or some bowl, <laughs> some unnamed bowl, you know, from X from X country uh, doesn't say, hey, by the way, we might have stolen this. I would love it if they were that honest. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, you know, as we're about to move into the conversation about education, I do think that that's something that's missing if you're going to fully educate people about a uh, historical artifact, you know, how it got to where it is, seems like something important. Uh, another another example that I'm thinking of that I, I was reading about, it's kind of cool, was the Koh-i Noor diamond, who, once again, guess what country it's in now? You want me to guess? It's obviously going to be in Great Britain. (laughs) How did you know? Um, (laughs) So this one's kind of interesting because it's supposed to bring bad luck upon any man who wears it. So this is one of the very few that comes with a curse, which is neat. But it has only been worn by female members of the British royal family. This stone adorns the front of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother's crown. and. Great Britain has claimed to come upon it legally, although admittedly after their imperial takeover of India, but there is certainly uh, some question as to the veracity of that claim. Obviously, it's very hard to discern a lot of those complicated details in a museum setting when you're just looking at the placard or maybe getting an audio tour that gives you a couple minutes of information. Which is why I think it's really interesting that a lot more people are coming out with the true stories about a lot of these artifacts in different media than might traditionally be providing that information. I'm thinking specifically of a TikTok from the account Joris underscore explains, where in 60 seconds, he talks about a very controversial museum in Paris that a lot of people probably don't even know exists, especially if you don't live in France, that has a massive collection of art from Africa and probably got a lot of it illegitimately. Literally, pardon my French, (laughs) it's the Musée du Cape Branly Jacques Chirac, which was initially going to be called the Museum of Primitive Arts or Primal Arts, both of which were very controversial because they sound big racist. So now it has a very nondescript name that does not really betray what the contents of the museum are. Joris suggests instead the Museum of the Stolen Artifacts from Non-White Civilizations or the Museum of French Colonial Denial. I don't know, but if it was called either of those, you wouldn't get to show off your French pronunciation like you did. I'm so embarrassed for my French French pronunciation. Duolingo can barely understand me most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) To make you feel better, I'm going to give this a try. It's the Musée 
Duquai Branley Jacks Chirac. That was Museum. very nice. <laughs> now do you feel better? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but this is, you know, we mentioned this up front. This is 90% of Africa's artifacts now exist inside of Europe. And the majority of those are in France. Mm-hmm. There are other museums outside of Paris in particular, but this one specifically has about 70,000 items in its collection. And in the video itself, the statements are translated into English from the actual plaques that accompany a lot of the art that talk about the private collections that provided the art and how some of those collections had thefts, but they just have acquired the artifacts from places like the Congo, but they don't really talk about how it's like they just walked around the Congo and found them without any people that <laughs> were responsible for creating those pieces of art. Maybe they were just growing on trees. You know, you walk around and you pick, you know, a, a bone necklace or a bow and arrow, you know, mm-hmm. like an apple. Yeah, just pottery just grows mm-hmm. everywhere. <laughs> Despite these questionable origin stories behind art that now exists inside of European museums, for example, the justification for this from a lot of people is that Museums have the capacity to educate a populace in a way that the country of origin or specific place of origin would not. But I think right off the bat, if we're going to be talking about education, we should probably look at how these sorts of nefarious methods that were used to collect the art in the first place might have an impact on that education that they're claiming to be able to provide. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very incomplete history. And then there's also the actual human element of the people who are putting these collections together and actually choosing which items are displayed in these museums and where. A big criticism about the Met in New York City is that they have African art in two separate places, drawing a really distinct line between what they consider high art being art from Egypt and lower quality art or more quote-unquote primitive art from sub-Saharan Africa, as if they're not part of the same continent and there's some sort of inherent difference in value between the two regions. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be hard to argue that the people who are now educating on the art, if they're ignoring the way in which that art was acquired, would be able to do that same art or these cultural artifacts justice in educating or Almost inherently, they would come with these sorts of biases that would result in them making these kinds of mistakes or miscategorizations. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. There is a definite need. And I think that there's an emerging sentiment towards checking bias in these sorts of venues. But it's not really coming out yet when we're talking about established institutions that have been around for so long. It's a very gradual process to get them to get right with history. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only example. You know, in in the intro, we mentioned indigenous art being stolen. And again, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met, they were accused by advocates from the Association on American Indian Affairs for classifying ceremonial artifacts used during funerals as, quote, art, which feels as though it belittles what these things were actually supposed to be meant for. Yeah, if the curators can't even bother doing research on what the items are and display things without checking the facts of them, that's incredibly insulting. 
And mm-hmm. I, I would feel the same sort of upset if something was misrepresented that way. Although I did go to a museum in Chicago that misspelled Clackamas for a piece of meteorite <laughs> that they found in Oregon. And I was like, get it together, Chicago Museum. <laughs> to be fair, I think we should note that the Met did claim that it worked with a panel of tribal advisors. Um, but that being said, they're, they're obviously still upsetting um, people out there that are advocating for uh, indigenous persons. So definitely there's biases that exist rooted perhaps in even just attitudes about how this art was collected in the first place and who deserves to own it. Potentially, if you think that you deserve to own somebody else's art, it'd be difficult to escape from these sorts of biases. But at the same time, I think that there are some legitimate arguments that would suggest that in these museums, the general public does have better access to education or even any access to education that they wouldn't have otherwise. Despite some of the obvious flaws with the human element, as we've already discussed, with these museums taking liberties or not actually investigating the origin of a lot of these artifacts, they do provide an educational benefit because there are certain things that people would probably never otherwise get a chance to see if they did not have access to them in museums. Obviously, things are changing a little bit with the digital age, but thinking about how different an experience it is to actually see this in up close, to see it in person, really does drive home a lot of the educational value of having a, a physical location to actually view these items. Yeah, and I don't think that you can really compare the digital version of this in terms of the way that it would actually motivate somebody to research it as going to a museum, seeing it in person. Or, you know, the work that the museums do sometimes to create sort of an immersive experience that you can put yourself into, where you're not just reading, here's a thing, here's where it came from, but they're trying to give you a more complete picture of the culture from which it was acquired, legally or not. Have you been to the Met? I have not. Okay. They, you know, despite the the critical things we're discussing here with some of the collections that they have. They also do really create that immersive experience. There is basically an entirely rebuilt temple from Egypt that would have otherwise been flooded. Mm. And they have so they several... could move, so they could move the pyramids from Egypt too. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're very so... small relative to the actual Great Pyramids. Mm. But there's also reconstructed uh like churches. Like you can walk into a room and it's like you're actually in like a 14th century church. The the experience of being able to do that and then walk around a corner and then see suits of armor from a different part of Europe, the the concentration of all of these items and the ability to go through all of the different spaces in one afternoon, you can't really get any other way. You can't go to all of those countries in such a rapid succession like that. So there is some sort of brilliance of having it all like that in one space. I think that there's also an argument to be made for people who don't live in the area where these artifacts are coming from having that exposure to them. So let's take, you know, Afghanistan, for example, if you are Afghani living in that country, you're surrounded by history, you know, theoretically, you know, your history. And so to be exposed to a little bit more of it by seeing an artifact or two that had been displaced, brought back to you, how much of an educational benefit is that going to really garner you as compared to somebody living in London or somebody living in New York that doesn't have the capacity to go to Afghanistan to learn about the culture? So your argument here 
or the argument that someone might be making here is that the amount of art that one collection has is generally insignificant to the country it came from, but is the significance is magnified when it's in an area where it otherwise would not exist. Yeah, I suppose it's a utilitarian way of looking at it, but we get more education if we're able to expose people to something who, who wouldn't have the opportunity to be exposed to it otherwise. But with that, we have to ask about the value of the education compared to the impact of the, the theft of these items themselves. Like education is an important value, but does it outweigh the sense of you know, emotional damage, like we talked about, the, the, the destruction of pride that a lot of these countries felt and the associated pain of maybe the colonial methods in which that art was collected. Mm-hmm. How do we balance the interests of those two parties? One other interesting idea that's important for us to note is it, it's relatively obvious that, all right, if we have a piece of art that comes from Egypt, that the history of it is rooted in Egypt. But I also think that it's important to note that the appropriation of an artifact is also a part of the history that can't be denied. Especially, you know, some of these thefts that we're talking about happened hundreds of years ago. And that's become a part of the artifact now too. So do you think that in the case of an artifact that was stolen 300 years ago by colonizers from another country and and brought to where it's hosted now, whether that's London or Paris, wherever. uh, Do you think that asking for it to be removed from that museum it currently resides in ignores an important part of its history and therefore moving it would eliminate a part of that story that needs to be told? Perhaps if the museum or whatever caretaker of that object is actually acknowledging the colonial history of that object while they possess it. And I think that there are plenty of museums that are starting to do a better job of that. There's been pressure on the Met to do that with its African art collection. There are other museums like the Smithsonian that are doing a better job of incorporating racial history into their exhibits and things like that. So that's a perfectly reasonable consideration that taking those objects out of those places, if those places are actively discussing the colonial history of those objects mm-hmm. could damage the discussion. And I think that's important too, because these, these artifacts can be microcosms, if you will, like reflective of the relationship and history between the two cultures and governments. Like this is the way that these two groups of people or these two countries or, or what have you have interacted with each other in the past and the journey that that's taken. But with that, let's, Let's look at the Rosetta Stone, for example, which many people understand the importance of, but maybe don't understand the specific context of the colonial history or the illegitimate ownership of it. If that were to be removed from the British Museum, that would probably spark a discussion about colonialism that is not currently happening with that object. Mm, That's fair. And, And I also don't think that any particular piece of art has to stay in the colonizer's collection to reflect that relationship. Uh, in fact, most of these former colonies have gone through processes of reparation and maybe the returning of these artifacts could be the perfect symbolic capstone to a troubled historical relationship. So if the artifact is representative of that relational journey, 
then returning it would be an important part of it as well. The story will continue <laughs> as long as it changes hands mm. <laughs> and will we'll become a, an additional layer in the discussion about the importance of that object, both from where it originated and who has had possession of it since then. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting idea that needs to be included under this category of the educational side of things and how that ties into the current resting place of any particular piece of art or historical artifact. And that raises a question about when this art comes to a place that wouldn't otherwise exist, regardless of the method, does the presence of, say, African art in France or South American art in North America, does that broaden cultural perspectives enough that it actually creates additional understanding and compassion and destroys biases and preconceived notions. Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a difficult one. Uh, whether people go into these museums really looking for understanding of other cultures, or whether it it's just easy to downgrade these cultures into an oddity, like oh, that's cute. Look at the spear that they had. I think a lot of people do go into museums with that mindset. Oh, this is a way to be entertained even if it's got a painful origin, but it absolutely will never get to that point of educational value. The value of being compassionate after seeing this type of art when the museums themselves don't acknowledge how they got it or the kinds of things that people experienced who originated that art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, on, on the flip side though, the really impressive stuff, the Rosetta stones, the Elgin marbles, et cetera, do bring up this sense of, oh my God, like how were they able to do that? Like at this stage of development to be able to produce this thing, whether it be impressive just because of its scale or because of its aesthetic quality or the knowledge that we're able to gain from it. Maybe that is a way that seeing these things in museums pushes people to understand and appreciate a culture that they wouldn't otherwise. I certainly hope so. And I, I think another thing here is if the conclusion of our argument were to be, all right, this particular piece of art is stolen, therefore we need to return it back to the country of origin, because that's really what this conversation is about. It's not necessarily in a vacuum, are museums bad or good? Of course, museums are good things in general. But the question is, is the museum better or worse than returning this art back to its place of origin? If we were to take something like the Rosetta Stone, out of the museum, or if we were to take something like the the bust of Nefertiti, for example, if this were to be taken back to Egypt, some of these big ticket items are the reasons that people show up to museums and the reason they pay admission fees or the reason that private donors fund these institutions. So if these things were to be returned, it's not just that they're losing that one artifact. Potentially, this could cause for the closing down of the museum in general and a loss of access to all of the education that that museum provides. Exactly. It's already a complicated enough ask to have people go to a major city to go to a museum. A lot of people don't live very close to any institution that has these types of artifacts, but to potentially jeopardize museums from existing altogether by demanding that their more controversial items be returned eliminates that possibility for basically everybody because 
when these items go back to their place of origin, the only way to experience them in person would be to go to those places as well, which is just practically speaking, not something that most people can do. So how do you replicate that experience if we are going to be absolutists about this and say that all of this stuff that we cannot determine was acquired legally has to go back to where it came from? How do people access that type of viewing and experiencing and looking at it from different angles and seeing other people's experiences as well, like seeing the expression on people's faces who are viewing that art for the same time as well, the community aspect of being in a museum, you're never going to get that full immersive experience again if you ask people to do that. Not only that, but it's not just that you'd have to go to a place that's very far away to see these things. Like you mentioned earlier, museums are able to bring collections from different parts of the world. When I go from one floor of a museum to another floor of the museum, I can move from South America to North America. And then when I move to a different wing, I can go from North America to Africa and so on and so on. If all of these things were returned, uh, who can go to Egypt to see the bust of Nefertiti and then to Africa to see the Zimbabwean bird and then move on to Turkey to see Priam's treasure, you know, all of these really famous artifacts and pieces of art that can be consolidated into a couple of museums are then spread throughout the world, you know, makes it really difficult to, to access them. But it's also difficult to access them when they're in more than one museum altogether. It's not every day I can just like go to Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we access this type of art, even if it's in our country? but we can't go to the museums or if it goes back to its country of origin, is that where we start to rely on virtual tours and seeing digital collections? And is that even close to being the same thing? Yeah, I don't think it is. And then I suppose uh, in counter to the argument that I made earlier, the utilitarian argument that says that this gives more people access to something that they'd have no exposure to otherwise. I also think there is a question of, is somebody walking through those corridors and seeing a piece of art from South Africa, a piece of art from China, a piece of art from Afghanistan, kind of boom, boom, boom in a row like that, does it sort of dilute the importance of it compared to if you are Afghani and you see here are the important parts of our heritage, does that have more of an impact on you? I wonder because I think a lot of people go to museums for specific exhibitions, specific items. And then by virtue of being in the museum, they see so many things that they weren't anticipating being there. They just didn't really know what else was in the collection. And that type of incidental exposure, being able to see things from cultures they weren't even considering viewing art from, I wonder if that could ever be replicated outside of a museum context. This education side of things is difficult to acquire if we don't also talk about the preservation side of things, right? It, it's all well and good to say, here's the educational impact something would have if it were in its country of origin versus London, for example. But if the country of origin isn't able to preserve said artifact, then you get no value out of it whatsoever. So I think it's important to discuss too, are these museums more capable of preserving these artifacts? And is that a justification to keep them there, even if they don't, quote, deserve them? I think that's a really important question because a lot of times the physical object 
is one of the only ways that we can have evidence of a specific context that a culture had prior to now. There are many cultures that have physical artifacts dating from before there was written language um, or surviving written language um, because of you know the decay of items and things like that. So preserving that type of culture is is important no matter how it came to be that there are certain countries that have more resources available to care for art than others. The fact is there are some <laughs> that have a better ability to take care of this art. They have the facilities, they've got experts, uh, low humidity rooms, acid-free paper, white gloves, appropriate ventilation, all of the things that mean that the art itself will not degrade further. And in some cases it's repaired and restored in the cases of a lot of broken pottery and stuff like that. Yeah. And this stuff is a, uh, this stuff is not cheap, right? These are world-class facilities that we're talking about. And if we're already mentioning how even some good sized museums are struggling to stay open without funding or without the interest that comes with these major pieces, then how are smaller displays in less privileged countries supposed to survive? Colonizers give money back to areas they formerly colonized. That's a, one of my answers for everything. But, <laughs> but um, practically speaking, there are going to be, if we return this art to the, the country of origin, there are going to be people there who want that art, but probably don't yet have facilities that are capable of taking care of it. As we pursue our ethical mission to ensure that all of these cultural artifacts are where they are, quote, supposed to be, we might be destroying a, a good number of them. And now nobody gets to see it. Not the country of origin, not little British kids in London, no one. There might be an acceptable cost uh, if we determine that it's more valuable for the people who legitimately have rights to that get to have it. And I suppose... The other thing to consider here would be the in, the intentions of the countries of origin, because it's not just financial capacity, but oftentimes these can be unstable regions that lead to even intentional destruction of art. So in Syria, for example, between 2011 and 2015, ISIS destroyed over 150 cultural heritage sites. And Obviously, a site is not picked up and moved into a museum, but the point remains that there's there's people or organizations out there who actively seek to destroy some of these things that we're trying to preserve and, and educate people about. Exactly. And then another oft-cited example is how in 2001, the Taliban in Afghanistan destroyed the two Buddhas of Bamiyan because they were false idols. And that is, they were centuries old and mm -hmm. there's no way to ever recreate that type of structure. They're, they're very, very uh, gigantic ones. I believe they were like carved into the sides of mountains. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when, when you're dealing with that sort of uh, active, willful destruction in the country of origin, it creates an even further complication about how best to preserve those artifacts and monuments. We mentioned that that China is another big sort of lightning rod for this controversy of wanting to get back their cultural artifacts. But there too, during Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, thousands of Chinese historical sites were destroyed to get rid of the country's capitalist and traditionalist influences. And obviously, along with that, probably countless 
historical artifacts have been removed from this earth. So I'm not sure. I mean, you know, this this preservation argument might be the argument that supersedes all the rest, unless you want to take the attitude of, uh, well, if I can't have it, nobody can have it. Um, if if you can't ensure its safety and its preservation, doesn't matter if you are the place that better educates people or you have a claim to it. I wonder, is there any other instance in which we base the right of possession upon the ability of somebody to be a caretaker for the object that they would be possessing? Obviously, I don't know if you view pets as children, but like if you don't take care of your pet, there's a problem. But if I don't take care of my TV, there's not a problem, right? So is that kind of paternalistic to ask that these countries prove that they can actually take care of their artifacts that originated in their history? That That is true. I mean, there's definitely an argument to be made that if somebody owns something and they want it back, whether they can take care of it or not, they have the right to have it back. And if it gets destroyed, it gets destroyed. And on the flip side of that, I think that there's also an argument to be made that these things now are collectively owned, that history is is something that's owned by everybody, not just the people who happen to live in the country where that history originated. And so if they take it back because it's theirs and they destroy it, they're destroying something that everybody has at least some claim to. It's a very cosmopolitan viewpoint, which sounds a little bit like you could be starting to argue my side for a borderless world. <laughs> All right, let's not get too far down that path. Um, <laughs> back to the subject at hand. Mm-hmm. So we're faced with a challenge here of how do we educate people on these cultural artifacts? How do we preserve the cultural artifacts? And at the same time, how do we make sure that they exist in the place with the people who deserve to have possession of them? Right? Are there any potential compromises that we can make to ensure that all of those things are happening at the same time. If we agree that it's paramount that we actually have museums, that there are places where people can physically go and view objects, then there already are some compromises that exist just in the fact that some artifacts do get legitimate replicas that are Mm -hmm. basically one for one. I was very proud of myself for remembering this because I grew up in the Bay Area in the Rosicrucian Museum, which houses a lot of Egypt, Egyptian antiquities, has a replica of the bust of Nefertiti there. And um, that was made in the 1930s. And it is so high quality and such a great replica that it is a sufficient stand-in for that artifact and has become kind of an artifact in and of itself because of the high quality of it. Mm, that's interesting. And like let's be realistic, uh, even if it's not incredibly high quality, 99.9% of people looking at it wouldn't be able to tell anyways. Does So does it matter if it's just a replica of the thing or does it have to be the thing itself to have value? It's got to be believably good enough, right? It has to look enough like the thing. Maybe... You mean I can't just make like a paper mache bust of Nefertiti and they put that up? I actually think it might have been paper mache. I'm oh, not shit. kidding. <laughs> but I, I mean, it. I mean, let's say it's like gold jewelry. Does it have to be solid gold in order to do the same job? No, it could probably be some other metal and then like gold plated. So it doesn't even cost as much as it would have been to do like a one for one materials and appearance 
type of replica. So there's probably a way to make it work so that people get the idea of the object without having to be in the presence of the actual object. And then the objects themselves could go home. So you don't think um, what what I'd be worried about is that that might turn people off knowing that it's it's not authentic or, you know, they wouldn't be as excited to visit the museum to see something if they know that it's just a replica. I don't know. One of my first times seeing live music was a Rod Stewart impersonator and people were like wild about it. So <laughs> I think that people, if it's good enough, if it fulfills the the goal for them, and a lot of the times the goal is to be entertained by going to these places to see things that they find aesthetically pleasing, that might be sufficient for a lot of people. Was he made out of paper mache too? I don't know. I was very young, but he did have the same like leathery appearance. So it's possible that was paper based. (laughs) So there's replicas. There's also virtual tours could be another alternative. Yeah. And I think a lot of people got a chance to experience these due to COVID because so many museums decided to put their collections online and do 3D walkthroughs when people were literally unable to travel and see a lot of these places in person and with how great that type of technology is getting to kind of replicate the experience of actually going through the place. And it's only going to get better. That can really help not only preserve how a museum looks currently before any artifacts are returned, but could potentially be used to help tour sites where those uh, artifacts originated from. Yeah. It's interesting because this wouldn't just apply to, individual pieces of art, but we mentioned some of these cultural heritage sites earlier that have been destroyed in Syria, for example. This could be a way to tour an entire location, not just view one specific piece of art. Yeah, like going to Petra and Jordan. If you can't actually get on a plane to go to Jordan, or you think Jordan might be too hot because you're a weak Pacific Northwesterner like myself, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a that's a good way to actually view that kind of place and get an idea of the scale of it and the dimensions, the layout, everything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there if there are these reasonable alternatives, it definitely weakens the arguments against returning artifacts to their country of origin, at least on the educational side of things or the access side of things. Unless people genuinely believe that there is some sort of inherent importance to actually viewing the authentic object in person, and that the only way to realistically do that is for them to be housed in a museum that's taking care of them in a place Mm -hmm. that's accessible to those cultures that otherwise wouldn't be exposed to it. If we believe that those objects carry that much value that replicas could never stand in for them or a virtual tour could never really fully give you that experience, then it becomes less viable an option. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know that I feel that way about those artifacts. And I'm not sure that a lot of other people would feel the same way too. And this also does still assume uh, the capacity of the country or people of origin to preserve the artifact once it was returned, which as we talked about earlier, might be questionable. And if all of these gentle, peaceful, potential compromises are insufficient, there is one other option. What, what is this? Stealing it back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I like where you're going with this. I think that it's definitely a legitimate 
way for people to make things right. If it was stolen in the first place, you're not really stealing it. If you're stealing it back, you're just reclaiming it and making making things right, I guess, is in um, the justification of a lot of people who are engaging in these sorts of behaviors. Mm-hmm. A, um, an activist who currently lives in France, but is from the Congo initially, um, Wazulu Diabanza has gone through many museums in France and live streamed his attempts at stealing back African art. He's done this in Paris, Marseille, and the Netherlands. And he's gone up for trial in at least uh, two of those cases as well. And he's unapologetic about it. (laughs) So that means he, uh, if he's going to trial, he did get caught though, huh? He did. This was not successful. I mean, they prevented him from leaving the museums with those artifacts in the first place, but it was very obvious that he was actually in the process of stealing these pieces because he live streamed, like trying to rip them off of the base that they were held up by. Mm. (laughs) So he was just like, I don't care if I am the person you see doing this. This is, this is what is correct to do because it's, it's not really theft if we're reclaiming it back to its country of origin. It was stolen from us initially. And in his own family, there were pieces of uh, personal belongings and I think some jewelry that were stolen from his family in the 19th century by colonizers. So he has a personal grievance. And this is a way that he's working with other people from the region to try to make things right. And uh, it's not just this guy. That's Mm -mm. doing this. Uh, We also mentioned earlier that China was victim to having, uh, you know, thousands of pieces of history stolen from them. And they have been trying very hard to get these antiquities back. And it would appear potentially that they have also resorted to theft as well. There have been a series of high profile museum robberies targeting Chinese antiquities that began in 2010. And a lot of people are wondering if China itself is actually responsible for these crimes or uh, repatriations. This was kind of a bananas thing to learn about because I think there's a fundamental difference when individuals are doing it. And then a state, a country is either doing it or somehow involved in it as a beneficiary of it that uh, really transforms the conversation. It looks like a conspiracy theory at first, but some of the art that had been, quote, stolen back wound up in collections <laughs> in, in China, which demonstrates that somehow they got these items back, whether or not they were directly involved in the actual, quote, unquote, theft of the objects. Mm-hmm. This brings up a really interesting question, though, which is, is stealing stolen artifacts actually stealing stealing back stolen artifacts Mm -hmm. because i think if you're stealing something that was stolen by someone else that you didn't have any right to is probably still theft Mm -hmm. but if someone steals something from me and i break into their house to get it back it feels like it should be legal i guess it gets complicated when like we talked about say There's a private collector whose grandfather stole a piece of Jewish art during World War II, passed it down through a couple of generations, then it was donated to a museum. Is there a point along that chain where possession becomes legitimate and then stealing it becomes illegitimate? 
or if the origination of this chain of ownership is nefarious in the first place, is it justified for the original owner? And it's not the original owner, right? It would be a descendant of someone from that country that's going in to to repatriate this art. Are they justified? That raises a lot of questions about how complicit subsequent generations are in the crimes or actions of their ancestors. If somebody in my family two, three generations ago did something bad and I'm a beneficiary of it, whether that's I have a piece of stolen art or I have white privilege or whatever, (laughs) that the fact that I'm not the one who actively did the thing does not mean that I am not somehow a beneficiary of that action. And so in my opinion, I think that there is no way to come by that art legitimately. You can't come by it honestly, even though you did not actively steal it. You still received a stolen good that somebody decided you should receive in uh, an inheritance or whatever. But what about if we're talking about like in the case of countries, to, to stick with the China example, in the National Museum of Taiwan, there is a jade cabbage. <laughs> somebody took this priceless piece of jade and carved it into bok choy. and. It is the most popular piece in this museum. And if you listen to our Taiwan episode, as you know, Taiwan was formed or maybe still is part of China, but was formed by political refugees, if you will, from mainland China who took with them artifacts. So you have a group of at least culturally Chinese people taking Chinese artifacts to their new home. Now the political identity of those people has shifted. Where along that lines is the possession of this this jade cabbage unjustified? First of all, this jade cabbage sounds adorable. Mm, It is. It is. We'll put up a picture of it on our Facebook and our Twitter, which are both at IndubitablyPod. Definitely. Quick plug. There you go. But I think in that instance, that is something we could probably never fully discern as being who is the rightful owner, because there's no legal distinction right now that definitively says one way or the other, if Taiwan is or is not a part of China. China believes that Taiwan is a part of China. We can get into that whole topic that we already covered in an episode, but it's still nebulous in the eyes of a lot of the international community. So That sort of distinction is really, really hard to suss out, but other countries, I think, are a lot more clear. So who gets to choose, right? What what Indian national, for example, gets to decide that they are the representative of their country and culture, and they are justified in breaking their jewel out of Queen Elizabeth's crown? I guess that depends on the point at which the individual represents the collective, if it's so important to the culture that one person can nominate themselves as the representative to do it. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's complicated. I do like the idea though, of countries engaging in archaeological espionage to right the wrongs of the past. It's just kind of, it's kind of cool. Indiana Jones five. There's, <laughs> there's four of them that are out now, right? I think so. Indiana Jones five. This does not belong in a museum. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, people say there's there's a phrase that possession 
is nine tenths of the law. And basically just means that ownership is easier to maintain if somebody has possession. So, you know, at the end of all this, how, how does that phrase ring true to you, right? Great Britain owns or at least possesses these artifacts. France possesses as a representative of, of Europe, 90% of African artifacts. Does that possession matter? Should the artifacts stay or do you think they should be returned? I think the question is a little complex when we're looking at some of the specific artifacts, such as the Elgin marbles, because there is a disagreement about whether the person who gifted them to England had the legal authority to do so. But absent that, taking the discussion at face value, the fact that people who do not have a cultural tie to those artifacts possess the artifacts makes it more likely that they're going to keep the artifacts. We're looking at a lot of these countries that have determined they want to atone for their colonial past and do want to send a lot of those artifacts back home. The process by which they're actually doing it is incredibly slow. They're consulting panels. They're looking at items individually over a prolonged process to determine how to send it back and to whom. And they've only sent back a very, very small percentage of the actual artifacts. Like I'm thinking like less than 10 in some cases. So even if they acknowledge that they're not the rightful owners, making that right is probably not going to happen for a very long time. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that in the cases where it can be established that the country of origin has the capacity to take care of these things, especially considering the alternatives that we mentioned, like the ability to replicate artifacts and the ability to create now virtual tours. I think that the vast majority of artifacts should probably try to find their way back. It gets difficult though, especially some of them that they've taken on new historical context because of the move to the country, right? Like as a microcosm of colonialism, that complicates things. I also think that just definitely like 10% should be left where they are just so we can set up a system where governments try to steal them back from other governments. <laughs> and we just have like a, a, a acceptance that, hey, if you can get this out the door of the museum without getting caught, you can have it back. I just think that'd be fun. So let's keep like 10% off to the side for that to happen. As always, if you have an opinion on this topic or want to let us know how wrong we are, you can reach out to us at indubitablypod at both Twitter and Facebook. And our Gmail address is indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you in any of those forums. Additionally, we'll be putting up some pictures of some of the objects that we've been discussing today that have a questionable, perhaps illegitimate origin story that way if you want to start your scheming to steal them yourself you'll be better prepared the first step is knowing what they look like <laughs> exactly well um with all that i've been josh and i've been kelly thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time on indubitably bye